Victor has an infection. It can it can go away, but Victor hates e-collars. Hates them. So I have had to create something for him, which if you haven't been on Facebook, you didn't see it. He has boxers on that are held in place by suspenders. Those boxers, I don't know where they came from. <laughs> yeah, they're not like a stray boyfriend pair of boxers. No. So here's here's the problem. There are two identical boxers, royal purple, that I have had in my room for almost two years. Okay. Now, if you do the math, you can go through all the men that I have dated in the past two years. Yeah. None of them, not one of them, fits the profile or has fessed up to owning these and leaving them in my home. So I don't know whose they are. It's it's like a very weird Cinderella story. It's going to make a quip about a shoe and the boxers that don't fit, but they do fit. And they fit your dog. Do. They fit my dog. <laughs> How have you been? Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hey guys, you're listening to the mostly bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today we're going to take a look at a 12th century German composer and a 20th century virologist. Yeah, I can't say that five times fast. I'm so ready. I mean, let's get you and your cooties over with. <laughs> okay, I have got an amazing woman who was born June Dalzell Hart, October 5th, 1930, in Glasgow, Scotland. Glasgow, Scotland? Gla- Glasgow? I'm just going to skip over it and apologize. So her dad was a Scottish bus driver named Harry. Her mom was named Jane. Uh, she left school at the age of 16 because she didn't have funding to go to college, although she was a pretty solid student. She got... You know, really good grades, but college is expensive. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, in 1947, she's 17. She gets a job as a lab technician in histopathology. Megan, do you know what that is? Uh, is that something to do with blood? Kind of, yeah. It's basically the study of changes in tissues caused by diseases. So, blood is technically a tissue. I about to say, that's a very nice no you gave me. I mean, no, blood is technically a tissue, for sure. I got lucky. No. <laughs> I, could, I could have said, oh, is that something with your nose? And be like, well, kind of, that's a type of tissue. No, 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 no. Blood is actually a tissue. Blood, okay, lymph, yeah. uh, fucking, it's been a while since I've taken AMP, but it's legitimately considered a tissue. Okay. All right. Yeah. I got lucky then. <laughs> Um, so she got the job studying, essentially, changes of tissues caused by diseases at the Glasgow Royal Infirmary. Yes. 25 shillings a week. I tried to inflate it. We're looking at 40 bucks a week. Around 40 bucks a week. Uh, okay. Maybe? Because 25 shillings is less than a pound, right? You, I have no idea. It's. I assume so. I think it's 20 shillings in a pound. 
I've I've no idea. I mean, I watch a lot of British murder mysteries, but they don't happen to go over their exchange rates. Damn it, Megan. I'm sorry. Midsummer murder has not prepared me for this. What kind of faux European are you? I'm not one at all. <laughs> Minus my love of British murder mysteries and my bidet. Okay. <laughs> oh God. I just I just know that it was not a lot. Somebody tell me how much twenty five shillings in nineteen forty seven gets you for inflation today? Because I'm pretty sure. It's absolutely nothing. Either way, it sounds like she was working a low-wage job that most likely had no benefits or paid time off. That. That one there. Yep. Yeah. She moves to another job, does the same thing, at the St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. She gains more technical experience. And then in 1954, she marries a Venezuelan artist, Enrique Rosalio Almeida, and they have a daughter, Joyce. So she takes his name... Her name is now June Almeida, and that is the name that people know her by. Okay. They moved to Canada. It's much easier for individuals without formal education to find better paying jobs there. So hers technically was at the Ontario Cancer Institute in Toronto, and her title there was an electron microscopy technician. I'm sorry, what technician? Electron microscopy. My, what? What's that bit? Microscopes. So I was about to ask you if you knew what electron micro micros. <laughs> now I'm having a hard time saying it. I was about to ask you if you knew what electron microscopy was because I did not know until yesterday. I mean, I kind of knew because I I've taken science classes before, but like the concept of how they work, I uh, mm, no no. It's yep. it's really hard to get my head around. Um. Give us a shout and be like, hey, I'm going to add this information in or, hey, this is how it works. I would love to learn more because I tried really hard. I opened up this what looks like a med school uh, like PowerPoint done by uh, like a like a student there on the particular microscope and how it works. And like my head almost imploded. I got so upset that I had to put my laptop down and take an hour nap because my head hurt so much. <laughs> like, That's me, Luna's coping skills is taking a nap. I, no, I was done. I was like, nope, 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 out of it. Will not be conscious for the next hour. This is not okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not a huge microscope person. Anyway, yeah, just let me know what I miss, what I didn't miss, all of that good stuff. So regular microscopy uses light. We all know this, right? Even you, Megan, you touched a microscope in our biology class in high school. Yes. Did you, were you able to get anything to like show up on the microscope? Do you remember? On slides? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, it took me years to learn how to do it. To focus the microscope? I feel like I'm. I feel like it's a trick question, and I'm missing something. No, I don't know why it was so hard for me. I think part of it was because I was having a hard time putting like my eyes in the right direction. I didn't know that you could move the eyepieces to fit the way that your eyes were as far as width. So I was seeing double, and it was bothering the fuck out of me. So I would just turn off the microscope. And just look at the, the slides in the textbook. I have so many questions. I'm not even going to think about it. What I am going to say is that it did take me a very long time. I can now very easily use the microscope. I'm very apt at it now. That's, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Uh, but I, I survived. And then I moved on. Um, but electron microscopes, they use a beam of accelerated electrons as the source of illumination. 
So they shoot the electrons at the specimen through a bunch of magnetized condensers, like three. The electrons hit the atoms of the specimen, and what's left passing through the stage where the specimen sits is the image that's recorded on the fluorescent screen underneath it. This kind of microscopy captures more detail than a regular light-driven microscope. Okay. And it allows us to see more intracellular goodies and cellular processes. So we can really put a spotlight on the tiny microbial world and all the details involved with it. Okay. While she spends 10 years in Canada, June develops this process by applying the technique of negative staining to whatever specimen she has. Okay. Okay. So staining subjects before putting them under the microscope does many things. But its main purpose is to help illuminate your subject even more. Um, Depending on the color of certain stains, it could tell you what kind of, like, bilayer it has, how easy it is to get through, whatever. Uh, But the biggest reason is, let me see more of this microbe. So things like gram staining your Staphylococcus epidermis. So it's a bacteria found on the skin of every single person on this planet. Um, doing that in a microbiology lab will stain into a violet color, allowing you to have a better look at it. It's a bunch of purple circles, in case you're wondering. Okay. It's not a lot of detail. If you put it under the electron microscope, you get really intense detail. You do not get color. It does not pick up color. It's like a grayscale situation. Negative staining, however, doesn't stain the specimen itself like gram staining does with different bacteria. Mm-hmm. It actually fills the negative spaces in between the microbes. Okay, so essentially like the slide it's on almost. Yeah. Yeah, that negative space in between. So June throws a colony of viruses and into optically opaque solution, mixes it around, and then throws it on the stage of her electron microscope. The opaque solution will darken the negative space between the individual viruses, resulting in higher contrast and easier visibility. So that's what she did, specifically in clinical settings. Uh, yeah. Like blood, their antibodies, their antigens, and whatever little diseases that found their way into the human body. So she's doing her thing. In 1964, a guy named Professor A.P. Watterson just so happens to be visiting Canada and just so happens to be the chair of microbiology at St. Thomas's Hospital Medical School in London. And he was like, yo, come back to London with me. She does. And she gets her hands dirty working with a guy named Dr. David Tyrell on the common cold. You ready for this? I am. Okay, I'm so excited. The lab was studying nasal washings from volunteers who were exhibiting cold symptoms. Ew. Yep. Yeah, no, I'm imagining it. (laughs) I love science. (laughs) Still gross. Okay, guys, I don't have anything gross in my section. I just want to throw that out right now. Okay, but my gross is interesting. Sure. Okay, all right. Okay, so we have these (laughs) nasal wash secretions that they're studying of people who are feeling sickly. You have the biggest grin on your face. All right, what's the plot twist? (laughs) I just, because I would be the one who'd be like, ooh, give me this. I want to see what it looks like. I'm that person. I'm so excited. Um, Okay, so the lab was having a hard time culturing the little viruses in the lab, like normally in a dish. Uh, So they didn't have a lot of specimens, and aggregating the virus where it was easy to observe under a microscope was difficult. 
So there were some nasal washings that were unable to observe because of this. And this consequently meant that the lab was unsure of the exact viruses that were causing the problems in each host. Right? Okay. All right. So like, okay, which cold virus is this? I don't know. I can't even find it in this fucking thing. Right? Yeah. So June says that this is not a problem for her. She's been doing this for a very long time. She's been observing viruses that weren't lab-borne under her microscope, her electron microscope, for 10 years, and she'll be able to do this too. She asked them to send the unidentified specimens over to her, and this was in 1967. So there was one specimen in particular named B814. Oh, that just rolls off the tongue. Okay, cool. (laughs) Taken straight from a kid at a boarding school in Surrey. Oh, my God. Was he an orphan? (laughs) I don't know anything about this kid. (laughs) Welcome to science when your parents have a 50% chance of being dead. (laughs) So she mixed it up in a negative stain solution threw it on the microscope stage, and that's when she discovered the first identified human coronavirus. Oh, shit. So wait, would that qualify, though, as a novel coronavirus, or is that different from what she's looking at at this point? Oh, no. Novel, it just means new. Okay. But here's the deal. In the 1930s, coronavirus was discovered in chickens in North Dakota. Then in mice later in the 40s. So nobody really worried. They went by different names because nobody thought that these viruses were linked and nobody had a really good visual on them. So they couldn't see what they look like and put them together. So when June got a visual, she saw the love-shaped viral spike piplomers, which is just a fancy name for the glycoprotein on the outer surface of the virus that binds to the host cells. Is that the little suction-y thingies? Yes. Uh, okay. And they're technically, they're more like keys, but if that's how you want to look, think about it, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for lowering your standards for me. Yes. (laughs) She saw it. She was like, holy shit, they look like crowns. So she named it the coronavirus because corona in Latin means crown, right? Okay. Okay. That's a fun fact. Yeah. I I was excited when I saw that. I was like, yeah, that's so cool. Uh, So no, it was not named after the beer. Just throwing that out there. So the coronavirus is not any one virus. They're a group of RNA viruses that cause respiratory hell, as we all know. Yeah. There are many strains of it whose common ancestors could be dated back like 55 million years ago. Okay. Yeah, because most of them affect birds or bird-like things, and that's when they were around because they're fucking dinosaurs and they're delicious. That are bats. Bats are not delicious. They're just really cute. Yeah, they are right. So it's old. It evolves, and it can fuck up your day. (laughs) Or your entire planet. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, there are, with all of the evolution going on and all of the cross-contamination coming from bats and aliens, all that good stuff, there are seven strains of human coronavirus that are known. Seven strains. Okay. Six species altogether. And three of those strains have caused fatal pandemic-inducing consequences, two of which were the same species. They all happened within the last 20 years. Really? So that, uh, is that SARS and MERS? Yes. So you've got severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus, SARS, first confirmed case in Shunde, China, 
ran from 2002 to 2004. Then MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome-Related Coronavirus, first confirmed case in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, 2012 to 2018, kind of spotted around in 2015. And then you have Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, COVID-19, first confirmed case in Wuhan, China. We're living in it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to pretend to be an epidemiologist, but I am going to say that after 55 million years of existing and evolving and changing up hosts, it's kind of scary that in 20 years, this thing has learned how to wreck our day on three very widespread and fatal occasions. Something even scarier is that MERS and SARS were fairly predictable. If you had the symptoms, your ass got quarantined because that's when you had the chance of spreading the virus is when you had the symptoms. Yeah. COVID-19 does not act that way. You could yeah. have zero symptoms and you can shed it without even getting sniffly. So maybe, just maybe, staying aside, wearing our protective PPE instead of going out into the world and allotting the virus more chances to get even nastier is the right choice. Yeah, Milana, but what about the economy? <laughs> I'm sorry, but we have to be okay with letting a certain amount of people die so that way people can go to the beach and go get their nails done and their haircut. Priorities. Fucking priorities. You know, I had I had to get into a little skirmish with my uncle on Facebook over it. Oh my god, we all have that one uncle. Okay. He shared some like thing about how the coronavirus was the least fatal pandemic of all the pandemics, and I was like, excuse me? Like, it still kills people. What the fuck are you doing with your life? This is like, these numbers are not set in stone. We're still waiting for the final tally. And if this has taught us anything, 20 years can change a virus quickly. It's going, like, it's going to get worse. You're going to have an even nastier version of these fucking viruses. <sighs> I'm okay. So what happened after she discovered it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Back to June. We're almost done. She finds this thing. She names it. She tells people that she's seen it before while studying infectious bronchitis of chickens and in other diseases. So uh, it's mm -hmm. called, it was the infectious bronchitis of chickens and the mouse hepatitis liver inflammation. Uh, when she brought it up then, when she was looking at the chickens and the mice, she showed those pictures of the coronavirus to the science community and they laughed it off. They told her it was just a bad image of the known influenza viruses that affected these animals. Mm. Bitch, please. So fast forward to 1967. Her response was that she knew that the viruses she found in the chickens, the mice, and now the humans were, quote, something quite new. But you know, she was actually like, bitches, I was right. Like, what? I, I don't know, man. Well, I mean, do you think her lack of formal medical education was another reason for them to kind of dismiss her? I mean, yes and no, because she did also get her PhD. I can't remember when, but she worked her ass oh, off. Oh, okay. Yeah, she went up to it. She didn't start getting a formal education, but she kept going. So 10 years of experience, having a PhD, working at several labs across the world, and they're telling her, eh, whatever. Okay. Yeah. Like, it's just oh, shitty. It's shitty. So Watterson's like, hey. I'm going to another lab. Why don't you come with? She goes, okay. She goes to the Royal Postgraduate Medical School of London. 
Okay. 1971, she uses her technique to finally visualize the hepatitis B virus and figure out how many components it had. Uh, that's important because you got to figure out how to kill it. It's an aloof little mm-hmm. guy. She publishes some articles and is like, meh, I'm going to move on to another lab. Moves over to the Wellcom Institute, throwing her name on several patents that involved viral imaging and vaccine development. And then she retires in 1985, becomes a yoga teacher. (laughs) Nice. Trains in China restoration. Okay. And starts trading antiques with her second husband, who was a fellow virologist that she married in 1982. His name was Philip Samuel Gardner. Okay. I, I good for her. <laughs> I love her. Of course, the electron microscope was calling to her, and she came out of retirement. Because women like us, we never stop working. She goes back to St. Thomas in an advisory position relating to electron microscopy and the first imaging of the HIV virus. Oh, shit. Yeah. So she has had her hands in a lot of very prominent viruses in her life. Um, yeah. She passed away in 2007 from a heart attack. Okay. But she was she was working up, kicking, kicking butt, taking names her entire life. And that's why we love her. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, shitty, her initial work wasn't very well received in the medical community, but... Unfortunately, we all have a healthy respect for scientific discovery in relation to viruses right now. Now we all know her name. There have been several. I looked up her name. There's an uptick of articles on her because of this. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I know. I, I knew you were doing someone relevant to our current news cycle, and I thought about that. And I was like, you know what? I kind of want a little bit of escapism. So, so you brought us... Uh... Maria from Sound of Music? No, I know I've seen that movie once. I mean, she was a composer. She was not necessarily a singer. Some musicals are not my thing, but they're the person I'm about to cover. That was one of her things. Very multi-talented. So last episode, we covered, you know, like that hard-ass art patron, Empress Theodore. She had her political enemy slaughtered. She was like most likely 100% responsible for the death of her bastard son, We even had Byzantine bear trainers thrown into the mix. Today, we have God. Please tell me that I will not hate this woman. No, things worked out okay. Yeah, and she she offers a really good kind of foil to last episode. Today, it's essentially a pop star nun of her day. German 12th century Hildegard of Bingen. How are you a pop star nun? I mean, she was a pop star nun because she was really popular. I mean, just in general, she's bit of a contrast to our sex worker empress from last episode. Hildegard was a bride of Christ, educator, writer, mystic, and a first for our podcast, a musician. Yay! Yeah. That's so exciting! I'm slowly branching out from outside of the visual arts, although she did have her hand in that a little bit as well. So our Hildegard, she's taken us quite a bit back in time, all the way to the Dark Ages, to a lovely 1098. Just on the tail end of the 11th century, she's born as the 10th child into a well-to-do noble family. Uh, unlike England and France, Germany doesn't really have one king ruling over everyone. It's like broken it up into smaller ruling regions. And it was a southwestern Rhineland wine-growing region that Hildegard was born into. Now, as the 10th child, 
What's your family supposed to do? I mean, all the money has gone towards the first few kids, right? So in the early 12th century, the sensible thing to do, you give them to the church. Oh, no. Okay, that practice, it was banned that century. But when Hildegard is only about eight years old, she's formally tithed to a local Benedictine order and put under the care of their friendly female hermit, Jetta, also known as the Incaris. But I think hermit sounds cooler. Oh, no. See, okay, you have orphans in your stories, too. She's not an orphan. She has a family. They've just essentially pawned her off on the Catholic Church. There's a difference. Kind of. Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I know, this is a fun start to get off to. Uh, so for a good many years, it's just Jetta, Hildegard, and the supposedly solitary room in which their prayers take place. And that's supposedly because, well, Jetta has vowed to live a solitary religious life. All the noble families in the area want to send their daughters off to live with her. Which has got to be weird. Like, I mean, Jetta removes herself from society in order to focus on God. And everyone's like, yes, you're doing an amazing job. Teach our daughters how. You're like, no, I'm a hermit. Go away. But she says yes. And that's how our little eight-year-old Hildegard ends up living with her. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Like, to be fair, for this period, and really up until the late 19th century, for a Western wealthy woman to receive an education, like, you wanted to be taught in a nunnery. Truth. So it might seem a little harsh to harsh to us today that they like unloaded their sickly child onto the roman catholic church but it was totally normal and honestly worked out pretty well for hildegard since she had visions from god and in 2012 the church totally backed it up by making her a saint which i didn't know is also known as a doctor of the universal church which is something we will never have on our resumes she doesn't really talk about her visions much as she's growing up. I mean, also, to be fair, we don't know that much about her early years. She leaned into it. She probably worked out there at the church's infirmary, which, you know, explains later on why she had a really expansive knowledge of medicinal plants. Right. She studied under Jetta. She learned to read and write, which in and of itself is a big thing for uh, a young woman in the, like, 12th century. And then she also learned to play an instrument for their religious prayers. Which one? It's like a stringed instrument. It's not something common today. Okay. And it's it doesn't come in later at all. Fair. So she's studying under Jetta. She's learning all these things. And it's all for her to be prepped as a nun. And at the age of 15, it's 11, 13. And Hildegard's like, yeah, I'm officially a nun now. Didn't quite have a super expansive education under Jetta, like... Because she kind of had, you know, her own specialty interest. But in being a nun, that introduced her into a larger community where she had access to more learning, both religious and on secular topics. And Hildegard, she took that serious. So even though, like, her health was poorly, like, she didn't let that get in the way of her learning. Like, biographers note that while she was physically weak, her mind and her spirit, like, grew in strength. So it's not that surprising jumping forward to 1136... When Jetta dies, Hildegard, who's 38, she takes over as the head nun. Because I think she's, she spent that entire time just learning and expanding and just bettering herself. She did it under God's name. That's so weird because I just, like, I'm thinking about us at the age of 15 and we, like, no. That was when everything started to fall apart. I'm talking religiously. Oh, I get, I'm not religious at all, so... No, like, like those about those were the years that made me go, well, shit, is this real or is this not? 
so I can't imagine being a 15-year-old going, this is only me, just me and God forever. Like, Yeah, but at that point, that had been her everything for already over half her life. That's true. Yeah. And that was her support system. And that was her education. And that was how she was going to be able to move up and forward in life. Also, the 12th goddamn century. So. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of like. <laughs> yeah. Weren't a lot of distractions back then. <laughs> Yeah, so things are quiet for a few years after Jetta passes. Hildegard's keeping things running. You know, she's, like, writing lessons for her nuns. She's managing daily schedules. She's handling admin work. You know, like, the boring stuff, just to keep this stuff running. Right. And then all of a sudden, in the year 1141, at the age of 43, Hildegard heard a voice from heaven saying, Cry out, therefore, and write thus. I'm sorry, cry out therefore what? Cry out therefore and write thus. Okay, so like you just said, like you're not, you lost your religion, I'm not religious. But for Hildegard, it was essentially God being all like, hey, I got work for you to do. And she listened. Okay. So like up to that point, she had told Jutta about her visions and then later a monk, Volmar, about them as well. But with this cry from heaven, Hildegard is like, guess I got some work to do and sets about writing. And what results from that moment in 1141 is ultimately three major works, all covering different aspects of key Catholic tenets. And I don't know anything about that, so I'm just going to skip over it. But what is important about the works is how accessible Hildegard is in her tone. So in the opening of her first book, she's like, yo, the Lord spoke to me. And I was like, are you sure? Because my Latin grammar isn't the best. And also, I'm a woman. And in acknowledging those fears, in the very opening of her first book, it reinforced how the Lord was like, nah, that's cool. Just get a good copy editor. Oh, my God. Like, okay, I I can get on board with just with her. Yeah. How she's going about things. Yeah. Yeah. So. Very cool. The monk Volmar, he becomes her editor and also is her personal, like, secretary. And Hildegard publishes these texts. And they were accompanied by hundreds of illustrations. And it's unique because, I mean, one, a woman's doing it. And this is goddamn Dark Ages. But then Hildegard's putting her own spin on it. Is she drawing these illustrations? So she's not. That's why she kind of, sort of has a hand in the visual arts. Okay. She's closely overseeing what she wants because she has a very unique take on the work she's writing. Okay. There's no confirmation that she had any part in the painting of them. Who painted them? Oh, you don't know. Yeah, we don't know. But, you know, this fits in with illustrated manuscripts at the time and specific to German. That was one thing nuns were really well known for. Right. So that was a really common product to be coming out of convents, like just in general at this time. So she already had a pre-existing workforce to utilize for that specialty skill. Uh, Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. Um, so like in her work, she's building on these traditional notions of the church, but she's also being a little crafty because she's making these subtle changes that really speak to her ideas that women should be included in religious celebrations just as much as men. Yeah. I mean, they're both technically creations of God. Yes. And she had a kind of a bit of a soft hand, but she really pushed it forward with her writings about the importance of women and with God and the church and their roles. So Eldegard's writing, it's not stuffy, it's not academic, it's not I'm better than you kind of text. It's expressive. And she includes her creative work along with these books. And that's why I'm talking about her today. But on the religious side, I don't know anything at all. 
Like you asked, we can't confirm that she actually personally painted any of the illustrations in her book. So as a visual artist, she's out. But as an art patron, creative writer, and composer, she's in. So for Hildegard, singing was the language of heaven. I'm definitely out on that one. I can't sing with crap. Actually, I mean, that makes sense because a lot of the masses, like old school masses, they were longer than the original hour because of the amount of singing that was taking place. All the hymns, everything. Mm -hmm. Like, I've had some masses where the priests couldn't sing and I'm just like, (laughs) it's such a big part of it. I mean, they're in their closed convent, so it's not necessarily like they're giving these masses for the public. It's just it was very important in their every single everyday task to be doing it devoted to God. And part of that is because, like, God gave you the gift to do that. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, and I think she takes that same attitude, and that's why she she makes herself so well-educated and mm-hmm. informed on things because she's like, well, God did this for all of us. The least we can do is learn about his creations and his work. Correct. I mean, I think it's a great attitude towards education. So singing, Language of Heaven, she wrote a musical depicting virtue and vice. All women playing the roles of virtue. There is one man in the show, the only one to not sing, and that man played Satan. (laughs) That was a little subtle jab to the fairly conservative gender roles and expectations of the time. Oh my god. So good. She's fun. And this play, like her musical, it's the earliest surviving record of a, a religious christian moral play like, and it was written in 1140 what was the name of it uh i think it just virtue and vice a lot of her texts they were listed in latin and i was like that's cool i don't know latin so that's why i haven't really been spitting out the titles of these things oh man asking megan to deal with a non-dead language almost impossible asking her to deal with a dead language not a fucking yeah. chance no bueno no So it's the year 1140s when Hildegard, she wrote this. She's in her late 40s, early 50s at this point. And it's the same time that the Second Holy Crusade is kicking off, too. Uh, Okay, here's my little side note. I just want to say that in terms of the Crusades, most of the time they were described as a, quote, military campaign. It was war. The Westerners were going to war. I was was like, that's a little bit of whitewashing right there with that terminology. But whatever. Don't mind me. I just, we're, no, we're not touching that. We're just going to keep going. Yeah. We're going to. So, as the Westerners are going to war, Hildegard is also writing music. She composed the work for her play. She's composing music for, like, their daily chanting and personal service that they would do. Since I'm not a musician, I'm going to trust others in their assessment that Hildegard was essentially jazzing things up with her music. <laughs> She was bored. (laughs) I mean, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, she legit was jazzing things up. So she would take these traditional chants and kind of give it a little bit of an improv feel for how she approached it. When she's scatting, please God tell me she was scatting. I mean, I can't read music that well, but, like, maybe. Uh, (laughs) Oh, my God, woman. Sorry. What I do know, specific to the chants within that time and within their section of the church, a very formal structure, only raising or lowering like a certain amount of notes, right? So kind of, it would stay within this little window. Um, 
Yeah, I, Hildegard essentially broke the window. She threw crap out of it. Uh, she would range an octave or more. And for a non-musically inclined person like me, it sounds like she was doing whatever she wanted. In Okay. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so, <laughs> in the Catholic world, everything is written for you. I mean, at this point, it definitely is. They've been around long enough. Even, even with her, everything was written for her. Yeah. She didn't have to think straight up. Um, whenever I would visit my grandmother, she would have several rosaries on like a little table that we would do in the good living room and like going to bed, we would do the full rosary in Spanish and we would chant it from things that we had memorized in our childhood or things that we had Mm. like, yeah. And like, that's every aspect of Catholicism, honestly, like people are like, oh yes, think, love God, whatever. But at the same time, like anything that's a little like just a little deviant is enough to raise an eyebrow so for her to add extra octaves that's intense yeah but she got away with it and that's what's cooler about this that's so weird yeah so like her text her religious works her plays her music i mean she broke formula like she did not hold to convention like what you were just describing and one really important thing about all of this are her visions from the Lord, because without them, like what you were describing, religious leaders would have been able to dismiss her work. Yeah. I mean, like the church totally backed her up and made her a saint in 2012 because of these visions. And like, as a non-religious person, like, all right, cool. But I mean, in a way, that was her loophole to get through and to play that power structure. And I'm not saying that she didn't receive these visions. It's just that was part of the political and religious dynamic at the time. Yeah, no, if you didn't have some sort of message from God, you weren't allowed to deviate. Well, thankfully, Hildegard's a little bit more of a creative thinker than that. Uh, But I mean, even without her sharing about her visions, like, the work she did was solid. It's good. Oh, for sure. Yeah, even separate from that. And it also helped that Hildegard was really politically savvy, too. I love you. I love our listeners. And more importantly, I love myself, so I'm not going into 12th century politics specific to the Rhineland Benedictine Order of the Roman Catholic Church. No, because, you know, I just edit that shit out, so it's fine. What you do need to know is that (laughs) Hildegard's writings got the okay from the Pope, and that went a very long way in her legitimacy. What? Especially, like you were saying, as a woman doing something different. Shit. Yeah. How are you going to knock her when... The Pope, Pope Eugene the Third, was like, yeah, that's cool. It's not even the cool Pope either. Like, what? <laughs> There's, I don't, I don't know which one's the cool Pope anyway. I mean, I know the one you guys got now is cool. That's cool. I think he said dogs go to heaven. Sweet, awesome. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. While Hildegard is is working on these writings, like she still had none, and things are going good. They're expanding. At the same time she gets the Pope's okay, she's like, great, we're moving the convent. Oh, and we're opening a sister nunnery. Oh, and I'm going to travel, and I'm going to give lectures, and I'm going to spread the word about our Lord. And I'm also going to blast local church and state corruption while I'm at it. Because why not? (laughs) What? Yeah. Oh, man. Am I now? She's creeping into her 60s. Mm-hmm. And the idea of, like, a nun at that age doing all of that, or even just let alone a woman, that, what? Oh, my goodness. In the 12th century, too? Like, yeah. what? I know. We're in, like, the 1150s. I, I keep sounding like I'm talking about the time, and I'm talking about a century. 
<laughs> but like ever since her 40s, like Hildegard, she's very popular. She's very accessible. And so it's made her a very positive public persona. And that's made it really hard for people in like leadership positions to try to mess with her essentially because she's got the pope um so overall people like hildegard she's pretty awesome and honestly there's only one instance that i came across that was documented where she was a little less than pleasant and that's when one of her nuns split off to form her own group oh no yeah and I, the bishop had to step in and be like look hildegard it's fine don't take it personally like you're okay oh no she eased it she eased up a little bit after that okay so after relocating opening a sister nunnery Hildegard also becomes known for her medical knowledge. <gasps> Hildegard, I love you! Yeah, yeah. She's overseeing over 100 women, mostly nuns, some locals too. Uh, and she's ensuring, like, their spiritual health and their physical well-being too. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, like, from Hildegard's point of view, God has provided the earth for man, which means he's provided medicine in the natural world. So... Hildegard's natural science knowledge makes her someone that, like, I mean, you easily could have covered her. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And here's the beauty of it in the 12th century, like, the knowledge that she had, again, so, so remedial as far as. Oh, what we have today? Yes. But, like, that is one of the situations where, like, that's the mental stimulation that these nurses need to continue on with their work. Where they're like, I don't know what to do. I'm dealing with a sick patient. I don't know how to handle this. They're like mentally in their head about how are they going to handle this person? And she comes in and she's like, okay, God will just trust God. We'll work through this. Like it's it's a way for her to like level the mind and go, it will be okay. You will be okay. And I think that's the main point of religion before things started to explode and get nasty. Well, that's something completely different, but yeah. But like, am I, is that wrong? Like for her to- No, no. I mean, you're getting more into the philosophical aspect of things and that's something I'm not touching on with this episode. (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) I technically have the Catholic card. That's why you can say these things. Yeah, but no, she legit was like, God will help us. Also, God provided a plant that's going to help with that rash you have. If we just kind of make it into an oh, ointment. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, like, in a very objective sense, she was like, we can fix this. We can do this. Yeah. And that's that's important for nurses who are dealing with a lot of issues that, like, sometimes are out of the control. Sure, this plant can help, but also this woman is here to, like, help us direct where where our mind should be. Yeah, she was a very reassuring presence in a lot of ways. And, I mean, it's not surprising because, I mean, as had none, she's probably the most well-educated woman in the entire area. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you have any questions, be it spiritual or, like, physical, she's the one to talk to. She took all of this, and she published two books on medicine, one on natural science. Okay, yeah, they're a little dated. She meant... Mentions a unicorn in one. Stop. But they're grounded on real world applications. Like she even writes about like gynecology, pesticides, beer fermentation. She's doing all of this on top of running to monasteries. She's writing. She's composing. She's teaching. She's traveling for lectures. You know, she's calling out local and regional like political corruption, challenging notions of what women are capable of, especially in that period. Right. Of course. Yeah. Like, like we kind of touched on, like, she was only able to do this as a nun. Like, in no other context at the time would she have been able to rise to the position of power 
and use it like not only to support her beliefs but also further the education of women i mean overall she's doing this great job creating more opportunities for women and creating a support system to in this all-in-one region of germany she didn't really travel beyond that but her impact was felt further away so in case you weren't like completely sold on her before milena the oldest western written record of the female orgasm is attributed to Hildegard. You really know the way to my heart, lady. I really do. I do. <laughs> oh my it, god! It's, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue, so I don't have it to read but off. You don't to have you. the quote. I will put it on the show notes. Yes. But yeah, little fun fact about her. I told your sibling while we were on our walk earlier today, and he just looked at me like, why would you even assault my ears with such words? Can you slap him next time you see him? Just be like, that's from your sister. Stop being an idiot. He's just like, oh, it's always about vaginas with you two. <laughs> like, oh, bulbous, thank you very much. Bulbous. Yeah, I don't really know what he wants from us. <laughs> He he knew, okay, he knew his sister. He knew his sister's best friend. He walked into this on his own. <laughs> Gotta remind him of that sometimes. <laughs> but yeah. Summer of 1147, Hildegard falls sick. She passes away in September. And she's 81. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the 12th century? I think that's cool. That's insane. She's ancient. And also, like, she didn't have the best health, like, during her lifetime. Like, she was fairly frail. So I think it's, yeah, it's even more impressive. In the immediate, she had a large impact on religious life and celebration in her area. And after her passing, like, the support system continued to foster the independence and education of women. Uh, Her creative work really asserted the importance of the feminine within Catholic expression and her holistic studies help keep people healthy and alive. So all around, Hildegard is, she's a bad bitch. And she didn't even have to have anyone assassinated in the process. Something kind of fun. So not exactly on point with current world life things. But you know what? I'm kind of tired of what's going on right now. So I'm okay with something a little escapist. So if that takes me to 12th century Germany for a hot sec, I'll take it. It was a nice ride. Yeah, you know, because not always in our stories, especially in my end, do things just get better as they get older. Sometimes it's like, eh, oh, and it's crappy again. Uh, it was really nice reading about her. It's kind of fun. I mean, not like bear trainer fun, but it was still nice. It's a happy ending story yes. that we all needed. It was something kind of sure. nice and sweet and so cool <laughs> to hear that over 900 years after her death, she like was officially ordained a saint. I don't know if ordained is the right word. I'm not Catholic. I'm not sure exactly how it works, but. They threw saint in front of her name. They made little coins based off of her, made a prayer. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's just uh, a whole thing. (laughs) Well, thank you for your Catholic insights today. I definitely appreciate it as a godless bastard over here. Blah. I need more (laughs) alcohol. Oh, my goodness. Um. So as always, if you guys have made it this far, you're really awesome. And we super appreciate it. And if you want to support us, we got a PayPal donation up on our website. Anything helps. Now, Milan, if people are looking to learn more about the people that we've covered, where can they find out more? We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at myfavoritefeminist. Our Twitter is at 
Milena Megan. So that's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. Uh, you can listen to us on TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and iTunes. You can please, please, please like, subscribe. It takes two seconds to let us know how you feel about us. Give us a comment in the section below. Let us know if you could have a vision from God. What would you want to hear from him? What would you want him to say to you? Megan? You know, I've still yet to find out the perfect kiln firing program for my first fire and then also the best firing temperature for my glaze firing. So if you could give me a little hints that way, that'd be cool. Like, do I vent the entire time? Is it a five-minute hold? Is it a 10-minute hold? What about my gold-based pinks? They're burning out. Do I need to do a cone 21? Do I need to go up to, like, a cone 22? <laughs> what is my airflow? Is there not enough oxygen in there? Like, shh. I mean, I'm testing these it's things okay. already, but it takes time. Shh, it takes time. It's okay. <laughs> so, you know, just the little things on my end. What about you? Um, I would like to know if there are any supernatural beings. Now I just seem extremely short-sighted in what I need <laughs> from a higher power. I'm like, yes, hello, please. Can you help me with my kiln firing? Because I don't feel like doing more testing. Please and thank you. And meanwhile, you're like, can you please expand my understanding of the universe and the creatures held within it? Because I'd super appreciate that. <laughs> Great. Now I'm selfish. <laughs> meanwhile, you're like, haha, my werewolf depictions in The Sims are accurate. Thank you. Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's being short-sighted now. Uh, <laughs> I love you. I love you too. <laughs> and we love you guys. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Bye. Are those two things together, Ontario and Toronto? Toronto is in Ontario. Okay. Ontario is the province. I don't. Uh, okay. I have never been anywhere near Canada. Like, it's such a foreign concept to me that people are so nice and have free health care. <laughs>